Well, hi, everybody, including the robotic lady and her voice. My name is Toby Miller. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. And my guest today is... My name is David Craig. I am a clinical professor at USC Annenberg, and I have for 15 years now been teaching graduate courses in a in professional master's programs to describe how global, national media and social media industries operate and function, um, hopefully to prepare students for careers out in the industries. Um, but I have a lot of other uh, superlatives and background. I was a, a, a producer and a network executive for 25 years in Hollywood, secured a couple of Emmy nominations, produced or supervised production of about 30 films, TV series, web series, book projects, plays. Um, I was also a queer media activist, a board member of GLAAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, and uh, very actively involved, particularly around marriage equality rights for the last 30 years. Um, and while I've been at Annenberg, I've managed to take on many other um, uh, duties. I uh, like gays in the military, I wear more hats than a millinery. Um, I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of uh, embarrassing in a way, but I have been really gifted with the tremendous amount of, uh, of privilege and opportunity at Annenberg. So I'm the director of the master's program in global media and communications, a very unusual dual degree program that is in partnership with the London School of Economics. Um, I am a visiting uh, scholar, professor, sorry, visiting professor at Shanghai Zheltong University at the Institute for Cultural and Creative Industries. I am also currently, this is really kind of boastful and, and a, little, a little uncomfortable to talk about, but I am currently simultaneously a visiting scholar at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center in the Institute for Rebooting Social Media while also a global Fulbright scholar and will be starting my research in conducting um, a basically market analysis of the competition between the global and Chinese social media industries in the global south um, in the peripheral, what we might call the digital media periphery to discuss a concept that we introduced in previous books around the rise of platform nationalism. So um, there's, there's a lot, to, there's a buffet there for you, Professor. Oh, and most importantly, I am a Millerite. You can't <laughs> see, but I have a half dozen books by Toby Miller on my shelf. I, I sought out and was very, very explicit about uh, taking as many courses as I could with Toby Miller um, in my uh, very protracted time at NYU in the master's program. Um, I can point to only a few professors and colleagues and experts who have managed to elevate my understanding of the larger structural and material conditions of how these media industries work in ways that I had no recognition or acknowledgement of while working in those industries. So I, um, I'm indebted to Toby Miller and um, what he managed to do. And uh uh, I'll, I'll just mention that uh, just yesterday I was downtown and I saw the um, this um, spectacular art exhibit, only it's considered to be a dangerous one because it's an abandoned construction, high-rise construction building in downtown L.A. that has been covered in spectacular tagging and graffiti by a series of artists, which has caused a huge embarrassment for the for the city. But of course, in my estimation, I consider it to be one of the best pieces of public art that we've seen in the city 
forever. And the irony here is that while they are simultaneously searching for who the culprits are and ways to shut down and, and erase this, this blight on, on this construction, we're also about to have the uh, Freeze LA, which is one of the largest art um, uh, uh, exhibits and, and opportunities for go people to go purchase the same sort of artwork you would see on these beautiful buildings inside some exclusive gallery for some ridiculous amount of money that to me is serves no other purpose other than to appeal to great vanity and to keep the proverbial art world operating under whatever illusions they have about the value they provide. So this is a direct reflection of of the the, the knowledge that was shared with me by, by Toby Miller, not to mention it makes enjoying particularly sports, really difficult. <laughs> it's taken a bit of the pleasure in my life around enjoying or at least going to any sports venues in the city, knowing full well the larger function and role that they have served to, to, to satisfy those in power. So there you go. There well, you go. Prof. David, thank you for those kind words and congratulations on all your many achievements and they span, as you've said, a wide array of things from your earlier period as an executive and producer involved in all sorts of cultural production through to your later scholarly work. And actually, I'd love to talk about some of those current projects, but I'm really interested in talking about what I think is your latest book uh, that I've just read. Uh, came out in 2023, I think, certainly was finished then, and which has a forward by an extremely well-known person, <laughs> one of the most important people in Hollywood history. And the book itself is about a very significant event in television history and in Cold War culture that otherwise maybe would have slipped by a lot of people, I think had it not been for this book. And the book I'm talking about is called Apocalypse Television. And it uh, circles around, as well as entering very profoundly into the TV movie The Day After and its role in the Cold War. So, David, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this extraordinary book and the gentleman who wrote the foreword. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Thanks. So, so yeah, um, uh, my my purpose of coming to Hollywood was because it was, in fact, television movies that I'd seen in classrooms that um, inspired me to uh, or and encouraged me to believe that entertainment was as powerful a form of cultural pedagogy as anything else that out in the world, particularly in my context where I wasn't even allowed to watch TV at home. So I only saw these films in the classroom. Um, I, of course, arrived in, in, in Hollywood and soon discovered that was not the reason others came to Hollywood. As I like to tell everyone, there are three reasons to go to Hollywood. I chose the fifth. Um, <laughs> however, I was fortunate in my career to produce a number of those films that went on to also be shown in classrooms after they aired on television. And that really fulfilled the mo purpose for coming. Um, and it was no surprise that when I went to get my Ph.D., which was just 10 years ago, if you can imagine, I um, chose to study um, that work for my doctorate and um, became aware of not only the larger breadth of LGBT and Q and queer themed content that had managed to appear on television in movies, 
that few people have ever written about still to this day. So it's sitting in my dissertation. Um, and I had the privilege to go and conduct production studies with the people who are actually involved in commissioning those projects at the networks, as well as the producers and directors and writers of them. I thought I was going to be looking at 10. I wound up discovering nearly 100 of these projects over the span of four decades. So, um, And so that, that work um, also led me to meet with um, a much beloved and revered uh, uh, ABC executive named Brandon Stoddard who I had only heard uh, in what I thought was just a form of industry lore, was responsible for the most successful film of all time, TV movie of all time, The Day After. And that it had not only, from all accounts, been the most watched TV movie in history, but had also contributed to changing Reagan's mind about the Cold War, or at least around his strategies for dealing with the Soviet Union around the arms race. I thought it was a myth, um, but I took the opportunity of my dissertation to ask a questions to which he proceeded to provide me with this spectacular account of this extraordinary making of journey that he and all of the others in the department and the production itself and the conflicts that occurred that, that, that occurred as frequently do with the creative uh, participants like the director um, around the making of the movie. But then he described the spectacular backlash that occurred months in advance of the film actually appearing from the right, the nuclear right, including the religious right, that were all convinced that the film was dangerous and was likely to incite panic and could cause all sorts of larger geopolitical repercussions and was fundamentally opposed to Reagan's position of peace with through strength. Um, and then discovered that, um, in fact, um, and much to my surprise, Reagan was actually a nuclear abolitionist. Um, he had never uh, believed in a nuclear war or a winnable nuclear war. In fact, he was adamantly opposed to all nuclear weapons, which was quite truthfully a, a real shocker for me and came directly out of countless sources and, and, and uh, archival work. The film according to many Reagan historians, had such a palpable effect on his mind and on his thinking, along with the larger populist response that aligned with all sorts of other political activity like the nuclear freeze movement, that within three months of watching the film, Reagan engaged in what historians call Reagan's reversal, a very stark pivot in his rhetoric towards the Soviet Union, in his policies towards the Soviet Union, and in his diplomatic overtures to the Soviet Union, which would ultimately lead to the first real um, reduction in nuclear arms and the towards the end of the 20th century version of the arms race, certainly not the end of the arms race altogether. We're still now we're, we're conjuring new ones by the day. Um, but um, yeah, it, it was at that moment, uh, rather shocking to hear him say this. I, of course, have been now, I'm a born-again empiricist because of my training, so I set off for the last 10 years to see if I could find corroborating evidence, and I found lots. I've managed to secure about 20 interviews with loads of people involved, not only in the production, at the network, at the uh, on the ground in Lawrence, Kansas, but more re remarkably, I found um, these rogue publicists who had hijacked the film without permission and submitted it to thousands or, or made available 
the and raise awareness about the film to thousands of anti-nuclear activists and really pushed so much the PR, which is in part led to the backlash. But what's even more fascinating was the extraordinary attempt by the White House PR office to hijack the narrative of the film, including a full-throttled PR campaign about a week before the film appeared that basically said this film is in alignment with Reagan's um, nuclear uh, strategies and and Soviet nuclear saber-rattling kind of approach, and that, that audiences should see this as further support for what Reagan had up until that moment been doing, like threatening the Soviet Union with, you know, space wars and star wars and referring to them as evil empires and, and framing them as, you know, a, a just a terrible, terrible civilization that was not, that was really putting us in severe jeopardy. So yeah, um, I, I couldn't get this out of my head. I had to take a little break from the other research that I've been generating and, and, COVID gave me an opportunity and a window to kind of put all this together in the book. And then, um, much to my delight, I got Robert Bob Iger, uh, CEO of Walt Disney, to to write the Ford. I I have to I, I think I can openly say that it was kind of mind boggling. I sent the book on a Friday night at eleven a.m. and by nine a.m. I not only had a response, but I also had page notes for possible improvements on the book. So I, I have to tell you that to me is, I, I it took me a day to recover. I, I was in yeah. such shock and awe. That's amazing. And of course, having retired, he's back now helming, as Variety would say, Disney and dealing with Hostile takeovers, shall we say, from a certain so-called activist investor. So he's a busy boy, but he found and time was, for you, Prof. He was already back when I sent him the right. book. He, he had wow. agreed to read it, but he then subsequently returned. And I thought, oh, I've missed my window here. But wow. um, oh, he was uh, very clear. Uh, he thought that this was a version of the story that had not been told, that he was excited for people to know about, but also very clear that it was a, a book that he thought uh, was well supported by the evidence and the and the and indeed it is. And one of the interesting historical pictures you paint, Prof, that I think is very well rounded, well put together, is to take us back, 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 as they say in baseball parlance, to the days before there was the deregulation of television, uh, when there were three networks. And they all made a lot of money. But ABC was bottom of the three and struggling in many ways. And executives were looking for means of differentiating the network. And one of the ones they found was the movie of the week. And as you say, some of these were long enough to be called films, but they were not what you'd gone to Hollywood, for example, or what you went to Hollywood to try to make. But then they found some liberal themes. And you referred to the... the in your early remarks, to the way in which LGBTQ topics actually found a hearing, found a venue, found an arena through movie of the week in ways that were a bit easier than would have been than would have been the case in weekly network drama or, or comedy, and so I think there's a real contribution there that's fascinating. And to take us back to the days when 
most people in the United States watched what one might call omnibus television, where to get a license, you had to do local material, you had to do, you're expected to do weather, news, sports, music, drama, comedy. Whereas now, although the networks still do that, and they still outrage everybody else, there are, of course, hundreds of specialist stations that only do one or two of those things in addition to the newer entrants to the screen who sometimes do omnibus things like YouTube and TikTok and sometimes are very specialized. And I think that the, the historical portrait you give us is extremely valuable of an earlier period and the way in which what came to be known as water cooler television really mattered, you know, that what people watched would be the subject of a discussion around the mythic water cooler at work the following day. And uh, for better or worse, this was seemed to bring America together. Famously, uh, Bonanza episodes in the 60s were supposed to do this. Whether they did this for Native Americans, Asian Americans, and Black Americans is a matter of debate, but in those days, it was a, a massively white society in the United States, like 89% white in the 60s until those big immigration changes. And so the mythic notion of network television as a place for everyone to get together and discuss topics existed. And certainly, I think, in terms of some of these liberal issues, including discussing HIV and so on, these made-for-television movies eventually became good fora for getting these subjects onto the street. Yeah. And I think you capture that very well. Well, thank you, Toby. I, in many ways, I think I was just following your approach to how you talked about the Avengers and then situated it within the larger context of what was going on in the world. And these are not products and, and narratives that appear out of nowhere or serve no larger purpose, whether through interpretation or through design. Um, and while it is absolutely true that we um, were this book is a historical account of that moment where we had content scarcity and the world seemed to be controlled or dominated by a handful of gatekeepers, quite truthfully, not in any way reflecting this, the both in identity or in in uh, understanding the audience, the global audience that much of what they produce made. Um, I'm hoping that that readers will walk away as well from this as an understanding that in every era of media history, um, whether it's the mass com era of that particular period of the mid-century or now in this kind of um, oversaturated era, but now also complemented by this social media um, context, in which there are many ways in which cultural producers and activists can harness this technology because of the larger structural conditions. And, um, and this is where I get to show off a little bit of what you and, um, and my, uh, my scholars like Doug Kellner taught me and helped me discover, which is um, in many ways, I've, I've kind of turned more, much more towards French social theory to think about the nature and opportunities of, cultural producers, as Miaget would describe, the nature of everyday resistance that Desertot discussed that includes developing a series of tactics in response to the commercial strategies that it permeates throughout all society. They 
every single one of us have certain forms of agency. I, of course, can't resist Deleuze and Guattari's understanding of the rhizomatic nature of society to say that media industries, even then, were had ruptures. They had schisms. They have mm -hmm. these ruptures. They repeatedly have throughout the entire history of these industries. Yes. And it's in those gaps and in those 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 fissures where change making work like this mm -hmm. is possible. It can happen. And if you think back to the thirties and Warner Bros not having as much money as the other studios, so making socially conscious gangster movies that were also about ethnic minority immigrant groups, right? That's or the the, the Marxists who wrote Somewhere Over the Rainbow because That's right. they were, they were part of the idea that there could be a better future. These spaces have always existed and been important, right? Always. And I think it's with greater frequency than we tend to give much accord to in mm -hmm. media studies, but also for me, really important to highlight because I'm, in fact, training students to go into these industries. <laughs> I want to provide them with a sense of, of power and agency and, and strategy and tactics yes. to help them go about also basically I can, I'm fluent to teaching them about the disruption from without, but it, it is then meant to empower them to engage in disruption from within. Cool. As I think, you know, many, as you, I may have even heard from you, revolution is easy. Reform is hard. Um, and I think it's uh, really vital for us to try to provide at least that opportunity in this context. So, yeah, now, that's my one of my goals. I'm just very quickly making a cup of tea. You can't get rid of the Britishness. Um, um, no, of course. But I wanted to ask you about Lawrence, Kansas. Uh -huh. Because... Um, there are wonderful moments from everybody from Nicholas Myers, the director, who obviously loved your work, um, through to the mayor of Lawrence, who are mentioned in the book, and the idea of Lawrence as a liberal oasis um, that, of course, is the place that gets blown to bits by <laughs> nuclear attack is amazing. And I wonder if you could just paint for us a little bit of the picture of that and perhaps even tell those who may not have seen the film, what happens in it? Sure. I love that you, you picked up on that. It was, uh, it was one of my favorite chapters to write. Um, and I borrowed the, the term from the fact that there have been scholars who've looked at how throughout the history of, of media industries, there have been upwards of a thousand films, documentaries, series, animation, children's, whatever, that have addressed or foreground or featured atomic power and atomic energy and the threat and peril, everything from those B-movie horror movies to um, very conscious um, projects like Peter Watkins' The War Game. Which the War Game in the 60s, yeah. Getting shelved by the BBC. And, uh, and of course, at that moment of this movie, um, numerous films. But I borrowed from that idea of the, of the atomic imaginary to think of uh, the American imaginary, the way in which both Hollywood and Reagan and every politician throughout history have romanticized this notion of the Midwest, yes. of this kind of uh, exaggerated wholesomeness and simple uh, life 
that um, it's very much uh, replicated in the in the film in terms of this um, very melodramatic soap opera-like banal uh, hour-long introduction to this small town of Lawrence, Kansas. And it, uh, quite truthfully, it is almost lethally boring as the directors and the executives would openly admit it was just like paint drying. Um, but it was in order to lure us into the familiar tropes as well of soap opera like melodramatic television, mm -hmm. borrow again from the other context, the melodramatic imaginary or the moral imaginary as Tim Dant would refer to television in his book. Um, and so um, Lawrence became both a, a, a symbol as well as a, as a as a site, it, but not only was where the film was set and shot, but also a kind of projection of uh, an America that has permeated throughout all sorts of media text. So Absolutely. you know, it's and, the and place where you know, I always thought it was always super bizarre. Once I was trained to think more critically, that the Wizard of Oz was about a woman desperate to return to a black and white, barren, desolate. Um, uh, play place that where neighbors <laughs> take away your dog and con men roam the the countryside and the only friends you have are the people your parents employ and they're not even your parents <laughs> so i always thought well that's odd, kind of well you know odd. it's interesting isn't it that the hollywood mythification of the midwest as you know real america which we see reiterated again and again in the bourgeois media's news coverage. You know, nothing that happens in Chicago or New York or L.A. matters because people there aren't real Americans, right? This sort of nonsense goes on at the same time as these places refer to cities like Lawrence as flyover states. Right, flyover states. And there was a really interesting uh, account in the documentary that I had been made recently about the same similar subject matter, which was that um, when the producers were flying over Lawrence, Kansas, they were shocked that they saw not just a large, expansive amber waves of grain, but missile silos in every possible direction, which is one of the kind of bleakest, darkest kind of accounts of what has occurred is that we have made essentially these pox americana kind of small towns that we uh revere as the primary targets for attack should we ever experience god forbid a, a nuclear war um, and that was the impetus for setting it there that's for the impetus for for shooting it there um uh of course we know that the Middle America is itself very much more complicated and interesting than any of these narratives would suggest. Um, but it makes for simpler, more mythological, cleaner narrative to show this, you know, picturesque, picturesque and uh, pastoral kind of world that seemed to be almost set in Reagan's imaginary 50s uh, Middle America. And then we witness, after a seven-minute long, spectacular montage sequence of borrowed license footage of nuclear attack, um, coupled with some fairly crude but special effects of the day, um, we then witness over the ensuing hour, which to me is the most powerful part of the film, the complete destruction and, and, and disarray and dissolution of society that what's often 
had been lost on people's knowledge or awareness until up until recently around that time period. No one knew what nuclear winter was. No one knew of the climactic effects that would occur around radiation poisoning, around the um, blacking out of the sun, but also the speed with which every society in America would likely just fall apart. Um, and uh, it is in that way both spectacular, I think, as a film, but even more remarkable because it's a film with two acts, the rise and fall of America in the wake of nuclear attack. There is no third act. There is no heroic, redemptive, here comes, you know, you know the, the, the military to come and defeat the aliens or the, that the, you know, the people responsible are held to account. None of that. It ends arguably in one of the most depressing and dystopian images you could ever imagine is our main protagonist now riddled with radiation poisoning, losing all his hair and losing his sanity, standing in the debris of his home and, you know, plaintively looking out to see if the world is still around. It's it's kind of heartbreaking. I wanted to also highlight, I don't know if you were planning to get to it, but to me, the other remarkable thing about the film is what happened after the film aired, which was this one our ABC News Ted Koppel Viewpoint Special, which the BBC did as well after Threads, but did on a second night. And I actually think that might have uh, diminished some of the impact. But I, I would encourage anyone listening, if they're interested, not to watch the movie, but watch this Viewpoint Special. To me, that is the most terrifying part of this whole and and for a bit of quick context so ted koppel actually british although you would never know it but became in many ways the most respected if liberal voice of 70s and 80s and even 90s u.s television news commentary and had hair rarely seen in the 20th century any ideas prof on where ted koppel's hair came from and where it went <laughs> who made it how did that happen but he was a very good newsman, a very, very good newsman. Yeah. Well, you know, what's really, really fun, and I really, I, I, I still can't, I still can't believe it. he gave me a chance to interview him. There was a very funny moment where uh, he said, David, do you mind if I call you back? I have a plumber at the door. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Yes, Mr. Koppel, please. Yes, please. By all means, anything you say, Mr. Koppel. And if you have trouble with the plumber, call me because I know some other people. <laughs> I, uh, I was so kind of, one of the joys of writing the book again was uh, coming at it through a more Rashomon like personal narrative of these people who were involved. And that included prior accounts uh, of not only where these participants in the story uh, had come from, but also what they, how they might have cared or been interested in the subject. And it was, Fascinating to know that Koppel had been the ABC News correspondent around Soviet relations. It had also produced a, a, a very successful seven-part series. I think it was seven or maybe 11-part series in within ABC News night, tonight around the threat of nuclear war, including a segment where they imagined what would happen if the U.S. was attacked. It was the template, one of many that we found that the screenwriters and producers found to, to tell the story. Um, but when the um, network approached the news division to say, look, this movie is causing a lot of anxiety out in the world, including with the right in the White House and 
we've been asked if we might provide more context for what this film is about. Um, they decided to air this unique format that they had called Viewpoint, which was meant to be a live debate amongst various um, public intellectuals coupled with audience interactivity. So Koppel um, hosted the event and, and, uh, and was brilliant, quite truthfully, at navigating this. And opens with a basically saying, get up and look out your window. You might be surprised and relieved to know we're still here. <laughs> now, imagine if you had someone standing outside a movie theater and basically saying, you know, um, that didn't really happen. But now, can we take the next hour, talk to one of the world's most leading experts while they debate whether or not it could happen? Mm -hmm. And then for the next hour, you watch these incredibly kind of brilliant, all, of course, white men sit around the table and have this very civil discussion that says, no, I don't think it would end. I think we'd probably be okay. And others saying, you've got no scientific training or basis for that conclusion. You're coming at this from a completely geopolitical and ideological position. All of our data says, this is it. Time's up. We're over. We're doomed. And then the audience asked some of the most extraordinary questions that I thought were even more telling because a lot of the participants just could not relate to them on a personal level to tell them that and convince them that their children will survive. I think it's probably one of the most powerful hours of television, but to me it was this, this punctuation mark on the night. This was not just a cheaply made disaster film, uh, the likes of which we do all the time in Hollywood, this is a what-if scenario that could very possibly come true. Now go to sleep and have a nice night. Like, <laughs> just to kind of blows my mind. Well, those were times when people talked about this a lot. And, of course, this week they are again, as Putin threatens nuclear war in Europe. But the other element here that you touch on in the book is, of course, that the nuclear threat that people were considering was not just that of warfare. It was also that of human error and technological error. And uh, you, you write very movingly about the uh, Soviet censorship and the Putin-era denunciation of what went on at Chernobyl and the very powerful HBO dramatization of that. You write about Three Mile Island from the late 70s in the United States and how in both cases there were belated evacuations much more devastatingly so in the Ukrainian slash Soviet case. And just how many, how much people thought and talked about this at the time, but then did go to bed and try to think it would be all right. And I can remember in the 70s as a child being told that when a nuclear attack came, it would be very important to paint the windows white in order to reflect away the heat. And a lot of the notions that are taught to Angelinos yeah. and other Californians now about what to do in the event of the big one in terms of an earthquake come directly from the playbook of things like paint the windows white when the nuclear attack happens. So these things were very present for people of my generation and earlier and later ones and are becoming present again. As people here in Western Europe, I'm speaking to you from Spain, get more and more anxious about what they imagine to be the protection provided by the United States in the form of the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance 
treaty organization falling apart, uh, you know, under the aegis of the Ted Koppel hairdo Donald J. Trump, and are saber-rattling in order to substitute for the U.S. umbrella, imagined or real. So I think those things are terribly prescient and powerful. While we were talking so that I can share it with people afterwards, I managed to pull up a link to the Ted Koppel moment. And uh, as you say, his moderation is wonderful. He really, amongst all those famous straightish, whitish, maleish subjects who bestrode network news during that era. He was easily, I think, the most intelligent and interesting. Apart from that, though, Prof, getting back to the book, it has some wonderful illustrations. And one of the things about the illustrations is that they veer between these quite careful studio shots of network executives and screenwriters and directors And then these devastating pictures of horror in Lawrence, Kansas, you know, buildings destroyed, dreadfully sick and injured people and so on. And that's an amazing visual aspect of your book, I think. I hadn't really drawn that out in that way. That's really an interesting kind of juxtaposition. Yeah, you know, the uh, contrivances of of professional headshots that we all get. (laughs) Aged photo ops with the president, or or uh, you know, speaking on a podium, a podium, and then the irony that those are equally as much contrived as the recreation of a a, a nuclear wasteland in a small town, absolutely, kind of small town, small city, and uh, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I hadn't really set them aside. This project got moved so quickly through production because we were we were trying to crash the book in time for the anniversary of the film last year. So um, it didn't that thought hadn't dawned on me. I will tell you a funny anecdote, which is that for a brief moment, um, I thought I would be um, hiring out of pocket my own editor to kind of give me a quick pass of the book because yep. I am a I I am as your very dear friend Stuart Cunningham and my very very close co-author. Um, uh, on all my research books has described, I'm a splurger. I wrote this book in about five weeks. Um, it was, of course, cogitating and trying to work out in my head. And But um, with all the other things on my plate and all my other responsibilities, I didn't have the time, which meant that I had to dedicate every moment um, going through the book. So I hired I briefly and then wound up not being able to hire this ed- editor it turns out her father had been the marketing executive who created the turtle animation for school students to duck and cover under their their desks on the basis of that's how we will survive a nuclear attack. <laughs> and she, I don't, I'm probably speaking out of turn, I apologize, but she she suggested that her father felt tremendous guilt her, the rest of his life for having essentially you know, misled uh, generations of young people into believing that. But there's an interesting thing here around the nature of of myth-making, meaning-making, and the way in which we might best affectively reach audiences about what are now an almost overwhelming array of existential crises that we're facing right now today. There are some takeaways, I think, and some important lessons to learn, to glean from the way this movie not only was told, but was promoted and marketed. Um, and I think that um, I think there are powerful lessons around the way in which audiences 
uh, are and and citizens are often lulled into a bit of a, a kind of a, a not an uh, what is like Gore Vidal called it United States of amnesia. I don't think we're alone. Um, I think that's true of every society is um, incapable of functioning at the level that we're privileged to do as scholars. Uh, around the larger macro level sets of power relations operating in the world that are putting us at the very brink of extinction. I mean, it's for, for the vast majority of humans, it's not possible to maintain and and to cogitate on these things. At the same time, they're just trying to put their, give their children a home and put food on the table. Um, but it is vital that we sometimes find a way to do that. If not for the populist movements that have emerged throughout many times in history. We haven't seen the moral arc of the universe bend forward. We haven't seen um, the world spin forward in the words of Tony Kushner. We we need a collective effort. And, uh, and it is very often uh, dependent upon people who can find ways to harness the power of these technologies and these mediums in the most effective ways. I would further argue it's not possible to do it any longer in a single night, single film experience, nor was it then. This is the movie that was the culmination of years of protest, populist movements, but as well as hundreds of films that have attempted to foreground these issues, but just weren't successful at that exact, in this way. The China Syndrome, which came out three or four years before, not on network TV, but on general release, as an inspiration to much of what happens here. And also you talk about uh, Peter Watkins. Um, One of the other things, Prof, apart from these geopolitical things, and as you say, we face a millenarian horror that is scientific as it over both nuclear holocaust and environmental holocaust that is just as powerful as religious millenarianism. One of the things that stands out in the book, apart from all those very important aspects, is the personal component of ego and narcissism and struggle in order to put together something that, yes, is authored, but as you explain, is very collective as well. I mean, all cultural production ends up being collective in various ways, even if it can be mostly said to happen at the level of physical distribution, say. But this is particularly spectacularly true of complex events with large numbers of people directly involved, like the making of a film. But you take us through some of the egos, the difficulties, the differences in ways that are not gossipy, although I like gossip, so Mm -hmm. much as they show the industrial complexity of making programs like this that is not just about how do you get advertisers, which was one of the big dilemmas that they, the network considered? How do you get this material accepted by executives? And how do you deal with the egos of the, the people who are centrally involved in the creative process? Those things are terribly important for us to understand. And you're very well positioned as somebody who's been in the belly of the beast to explain that. And I think that's one of the many strengths of the book. So perhaps... This is a long-winded prolegomena to a question. Could you explain to us a little bit about some of those issues, the people involved? Uh, absolutely. Um, 
I'll just say that um, if I were to be asked to offer up any overarching kind of framework for how I understand the industry now as a scholar and a researcher, it is a, a reflection of the work of Havens and Lotz and Tenek's discussion of critical media industry studies. There's a spectacular quote I'd like to read, which is, if and when popular culture is considered within a political economic analysis, there is a reductionist tendency to treat it as yet another form of commodified culture operating only according to the interests of capital. There is little room to consider the moments of creativity and struggles over representational practices from that vantage point. Here I would go beyond representational practices to talk about progressive politics and kind of foregrounding the largest, most existential kind of social critical uh, geopolitical concerns that we were facing then and still are. So um, I, I'm a firm believer that we have to understand both at the macro level, the larger political economic structural material conditions in which these industries work. But if we disregard this kind of mid-level agency and contestations that can sometimes occur, we 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 basically forswear the ability to harness that power. So um, that's became important, maybe a justification for the things, choices and decisions in my career, but really important in the way in which I, I wrote my dissertation around queer uh, people, including non-queer allies who were championing these projects um, before when they knew they weren't going to get funding or advertising and they knew they were going to place themselves, place targets on their backs from the uh, political and the religious um, um, opponents. I mean, it was, it, it wasn't without precarity and I wanted to highlight the precariousness of creative work. And it's the sort of thing I teach in my classes. I teach a course in what I call creative, creative and critical media management strategies which is understanding that while operating within these larger structural considerations, there are tactics um, and contestations and battles that you wind up fighting every day, ethical and moral dilemmas that you're confronted by from who do you put on the poster or who do you invite to the premiere to who do you cast in the film and which films do you find in finance? Um, so I really wanted to do that through a the personal narratives of the participants in the story. One of my favorite, um, uh, I'm going to call them characters, bust, uh, players in the story is Ed Hume, the screenwriter, um, who I just fell in love with. Just one of the greatest interviews I've ever had. He was so eloquent, and I'm so sad he died a month before the book came out. Um, but to me, a really fascinating account of a guy who saw the power, came from a family that had a rich, deep, religious, theological kind of uh, background. Um, his father had been tragically killed by the Nazis in a uh, Swedish plane over uh, Europe in the World War II. Um, he did not go in that direction, but chose entertainment as a vehicle, as a, as a tool for which he could try to engage in social justice work wound up being the most prolific, successful pilot writer of programmatic detective series of the 70s, Streets of, of San Francisco, and I, I, I'm trying to make canon. Um, and then, as he said, I would moonlight by night writing the scripts for movies and TV movies that I thought would never get made, but hoped they would because they could foreground the sort of causes and things that mattered to me and that I thought the world should care more about. 
And he never actually really thought this movie would get made, but was shocked to find the network very much in alignment with how he wanted to tell the story. And um, there's a moment in the book that I describe, I think you probably may remember, where um, the network calls with what is typically great news. They let him know the script was terrific. They wept and they were going to go forward and make the film. And that left him even more depressed And Stoddard, the executive, said, "Why? what's going on? And he goes, can you imagine what it's like waking up every day for two years thinking about the end of the world? Um, so you see that, you know, these these are humans, right, who are doing with the best with what they're capable of doing, trying to exercise their best possible creative uh, interest um, and sometimes running up into direct conflict. Um, the, the book has... many instances of the uh, ongoing fights and battles between the network and the director of the film. Nicholas Meyer. Yeah. Yeah. It was truly one of the most brilliant. I mean, I, I mean, I've never met a more learned and well-read person and I hang out with people like you all the time, Toby, no offense, but he is so kind of almost too brilliant for this industry. In many ways, that's probably why he does more writing of books now than he does uh, movies and series much these days. But um, at that exact moment, he could have written and he could have done anything. He had just had huge success with Star Trek II, which re kind of rebuilt the franchises and relaunched it as a feature franchise and could have been offered anything he wanted, but could not resist the, the opportunity to make a possible difference and, and, change the debate he and the network were not always in well aligned around the way the film should get made and they were just countless instances of very very um uh tough kind of creative struggles um the network of course had a very uh hypersensitive uh censorship group the standards and practices group as we the euphemism um Uh, I always found it fascinating. They were often um, former Jesuit priests who've been hired to come in and protect the network from, you know, any sort of backlash. And that meant taking a hyper diligent and very kind of crude uh, a knife to all their projects that dared to mention anything controversial. Um, and that, that didn't fly. That wasn't going to work for Toby. So we went ahead and shot the scenes that they tried to excise anyway, and the network couldn't stop him. Um, Then the network also was rightfully concerned that the film just was not going to sustain itself over two nights. And they also didn't have any advertisers. So and there were a lot of battles that ensued um, in the in the edit room. Uh, still to this day, a lot of dissent about what really happened and who said what and when and why. Um, I think uh, Nick had every reason to be convinced that the network might pull out and just walk away because... The pressure from outside got unrelenting. Um, and, uh, you know, many people can and should take credit for the fact that it still went ahead despite all that, despite the flight of advertisers, despite the fact that the network was not only going to lose a lot of money, which in the brand scheme of things probably wasn't that big a, a problem, but more importantly, put themselves in direct sight lines of the Reagan administration. Um, let's not forget that this is the same time period that the head of the FCC was referring to television as a vast wasteland. And within a year of this movie airing, the FCC had 
and the Congress had changed the rules to allow this competing industry to emerge through cable and satellite delivery that pretty much brought the broadcast era to an end. It's had a slow and painful death still winding its way out to this day. But um, so this is Mark Fowler, who was head of the Federal Communications Commission, who actually said television is a toaster with pictures. Toasters with pictures. Vast Wasteland was the 60s. Newton Minow in the 60s. And the point about the toaster with pictures argument was that the only role that governments should have with technologies is making sure they don't explode or burn you. And uh, in terms of what they say ideologically, visually, audibly, that should not be the business of the state. And this was a, there's not only the transformation in terms of the end of the omnibus service being a monopoly or near monopoly situation, but also in terms of all kinds of sovereign citizen uh, objection to representation of themselves or groups they were members of that have been introduced as part of a more progressive Federal Communications Commission. We all bow our hats to Nicholas Johnson, for example, and the things that people like like him sought to give us. Now, Prof, we're almost at the end of our time together, so I wondered if I could ask you one more question and then invite you to add anything you wish. Does that sound okay? Absolutely. And and I want you to come back and talk about other projects because we got, as I wanted us to, I must admit, very caught up in this book. But I want to hear, and I'm sure listeners will too, more about your rather amazing adventures. So my question to you is this. Prof. Craig, I'm knocking on the door. I'm one of your eager beaver global MA, communication, media, one around the world, but in a humane and caring way, students. And I've been so excited by studying with you that I now want to do a doctorate. And the the way I want to do it is I want to go off and run. uh, I want to take over Disney and TikTok and fly around the world while I do so. But then I want to do a doctorate. And my question to you, because I'll be in the rocket flying around the world, I won't actually meet anybody while pulling the metaphorical strings of these institutions. How do I manage to write a book like yours? How do I do it? My better example would be somebody who doesn't manage to take over TikTok and Disney and isn't in a rocket ship, but just wants to do a PhD. How do I get access is it possible ah. if I've not been an executive, a person involved in the winning of Emmy Awards and whatnot, if I'm 29 and I'd, I'm come from Lawrence, Kansas, and I don't know anybody? Could right. I write this kind of book? Could I have written something like the PhD that you wrote? I love it. I love it. Um, it was uh, probably one of my greatest moments in my career where my very beloved mentor advisor, John Caldwell, the father really of production studies, who was on my committee, announced at my dissertation, okay, today's the day we stop making excuses for not getting access. It's not just 
people like me that can get access. In every interview I've ever conducted with a producer or a network executive, I've asked one simple question. How many times have you been contacted by scholars to explain what you do? And the most amazing response was when Brandon Stoddard, the very center of this book, declared very clearly, oh, once for two hours, I was asked to set aside two hours for a doctoral student who came to my office, sat down, and then asked me what he thought was the most pertinent, important question, which was, why was there so much yellow clothing used in the wardrobe design on the miniseries Roots? What was the meaning behind the yellow wardrobe? And I simply, and Brandon said, I asked him, what did the wardrobe production people say? And he said, oh, I don't know who that is. I never, I didn't. And Brandon quickly, politely asked him to leave the room. And um, other than that, quite truthfully, almost no one I've ever interviewed has ever had scholars, master's or doctoral students or career scholar, early career media scholars engage with them about what it is they do, why they do it, how they do it, what strategies they use, and and offer much in the way of recognition that these turn out to be not only people very similarly aligned in terms of our politics often, but genuinely concerned about many of the same crises that are appearing out in the world. But what I find even more stunning is I have a PhD from one of the main R1 institutions in Hollywood, and I teach at one of the R1 institutions in Hollywood. And um, our students are more often than not the future leaders of those industries. We are uh, blessed in this context with the richest, deepest deck of alumni in these media industries who are rarely asked to explain the nature of what it is they do, but more often than not only approached about offering the chance to do what they do with a certain level of contempt about what they do, because every student has been taught, well, what they do is terrible. They don't know what they're doing and we can do it better. Even if we don't fully understand what it is they do. Um, So I, I have to say, this is a deep phenomenological response from a former network executive and producer who's now spent 15 years training future network executives and producers. And the first thing I would say is, is um, harness your alumni networks, treat the uh, attempt to secure these interviews as with as much deliberation and strategy as you do a blind date or a, a date on Tinder on any app that you have out there. Harness the tools and resources that we already have for doing conducting network analysis, including notably IMDb P Pro and LinkedIn Pro to get behind the walls, past the gates. Um, We now have a, a much larger, more expansive media industries, which means many, many more um, potential uh, sites of, of study and reference, although one that is rapidly contracting and especially in the next over the past year. But we just emerged from what was the peak TV era of more production, programming, commissioning of projects in the history of this industry, which means a vast breadth of people who have firsthand accounts of what actually went on on the set, in the corridors of power, in the post-production and marketing phase of these 
projects. So that's the first thing to say is that um, I don't think we can continue to cling to the belief that these are aliens who come down from some other planet who would offer zero access to our our inquiries. But walking in those rooms without a much richer breadth and knowledge and awareness of how these industries work is vital. Um, we tend to often keep our critical scholars away from our descriptive courses. So we don't often allow our critical scholars a richer breadth of knowledge of how these things work in order for them to better study what isn't working well or how it might work better. And so I so I think it's a mixture of a certain conceptual humility, but also a boldness in terms of going in and asking for things, but combined with doing your preparation. You don't go to leaders of an industry to find out how the industry works. You learn as much as you can before you go into their office or onto their Zoom network or whatever it might be. They don't want to be giving you nuts and bolts on a first date, as it were. They might if you got to know them better. Um, they want to know that you know a lot already, but you're actually, but you're also humble. I think that's a really important thing to do. Um, so, Prof, um, before we finish or to conclude, are there things that you'd like to add to what we've discussed? Well, um, I, I think I... Embarrassed to say, go for another hour. So you're going to have to cut me off. You know, I'm a little bit wordy um, and I get very evangelical about the, the research that I'm doing. But I just spent the last six months looking at what is effectively a complementary set of logics, conditions and and um, and uh, 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 opportunities that lie in the social media context. Um, I've been studying what I what a term I borrow from a, a defunct YouTube program about creators for change, which refers to social media entrepreneurs who, while using platforms to aggregate and build online communities, which they then monetize through a whole raft of business models and revenue streams, are sometimes willing to align with the work and mission of civil society organizations, human rights organizations, nonprofit organizations, NGOs, grassroots organizations, political campaigns, etc. These two things, just like in apocalypse television, are not particularly well twined. In fact, they can be quite precarious. If you come out in favor of a candidate or a cause these days on social media, you're not li only likely to experience uh, throbbing from the uh, the various trolls and 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 uh and less than savory characters who uh, seem to thrive on social media you're in this case likely to also lose your funding you're likely to lose your livelihood because these are people who are entrepreneurs dependent upon these platforms and these communities um and in partnership not just with brands but uh, many 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 revenue streams that they put at risk and then there are uh, instances now that I'm discovering are far greater than I had even imagined. And, and I've been studying creators for 10 years of all these organizations from the UN, Amnesty, Save the Children, USAID, to all these intermediary agencies or what I call creator brokerage firms, bringing together nonprofit organizations and CSOs around their cause and mission with creators who may not even ever uh, 
advocate for these causes, but happen to share and align with them. And it's super fascinating to me, not only it's yet another continuation of my uh, unbridled belief that we do need those allies in the fray who best have the best knowledge of how to harness this technology, but I don't think we're going to survive without them. And uh, I think it's not, I've been trying to get a better handle of how these organizations even understand who creators are and what make them different from producers or celebrities, um, but also uh, try to get a head around my head around what strategies and tactics have worked best in this space to help harness the power of creator culture to align with progressive culture. Thank you so much, Prof. It was wonderful to learn uh, all this from you, to find out such interesting and exciting things about both the past and the present. It's a pleasure, Toby. You know, I, uh, I, I kind of I couldn't believe it. I'm always thrilled to be in your presence. I am, again, so indebted. I mean, really, it was life-changing being your student, and I'm just beyond grateful for what you've done and continue to do to help me think and elevate my my understanding of these things.